I went downstairs to the coffee shop attached to my building. And I was like, excuse me, Mr. Hipster person. You and your ridiculously expensive coffee. I am exhausted and have to record a podcast. Give me caffeine. And he was like, I got it. And he gave me an espresso coffee. And now I'm all over the place. And when I crash, I'm going to crash. Because when I crash off of a caffeine high, it is not pretty. I don't drink coffee a lot. So let's get this before I crash, woman. Season two, I don't know what to say. Yeah, you do. I know. Oh my goodness. I gotta get myself all hyped again. I've been practicing this. I'm like, oh, I can't wait. And then here I am. I have not been practicing this. So we're just gonna flow. All right. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co host, Milena. Hey guys, you're listening to a bi weekly podcast that explores feminist figures and the arts and sciences. Welcome to season two. Season two. It's so exciting. This season brought to you by the flu. The flu. We might have started a little bit later because I got the flu. One of us got the flu shot and the other one didn't. Fuck off. (laughs) I will get it next year. Yeah. So season two was brought to you by the flu and then by me throwing out my back because I'm almost 30 And my body knows that, but I don't. And here we are. I am lying on my back. Can I go first? You can go first. In fact, I want you to go first because this espresso will be kicking out eventually. And I want to be able to pay attention to you and not. Oh, gee, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so just like you, I spent a lot of time with my family over the winter break. And I spent a good bit of time with my grandma in particular. And Milena, as much as we love our grandmas, today's artist, Grandma Moses, she's going to make them seem lame. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's let's go through our list of grandmas, right? There's your grandma who's stylish and wonderful and doesn't even act like a grandma. And she's super sweet. And there are amazing cookies this recipe that she gave you. Oh, her Christmas cookie recipe is bitchin'. It's good stuff. Grandma gives Megan so much cool shit. Not just like actual like tangible things, but the wisdom and the power that comes from grandma goes straight to Megan. That's where she gets it. Grandma is the head of the family. She runs things. And then there are my grandmas, right? Well, the one that is not alive was also just as powerful. But in like a scary way. Rest in peace, Grandma. And then the other one shot at her neighbor for shooting her dog. I didn't know that story, but I feel it was justified. (laughs) So, I mean, we're dealing with some no-nonsense grandmas. No. Our grandmas don't mess around. The second to last time I was on the phone with her, she was telling me about that time that she shot at her neighbor for shooting her dog. And then she ended the conversation with, honey, I gotta go. The cops are at my door. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) That's my living grandmother. <laughs> oh, oh, man. 
Tennessee is a wild place. <laughs> okay, so our grandmas, they're pretty cool ga- grandmas. <laughs> but they're not like solo show at the Modern Museum of Art in New York City type of cool grandmas. Oh, snap. Yeah. See? Lame. Our grandma suddenly seemed lame. Oh, no. Yeah. So today's artist is Anna Mary Robertson Moses, who is best known as Grandma Moses. She's pretty impressive. So this woman was born all the way back in 1860. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I told your mom I was going to try not to cuss as much, but like effing 1860. I mean, that's like the same year President Lincoln was elected. And then a year later, we've got the goddamn Civil War kicking off here in the United States. But, like, for the time, Anna, she was kind of sheltered from that whole Civil War thing. Uh, She was born in a working-class family up in upstate New York. So they were kind of, like, outside that immediate range of, you know, kind of Civil War. War going on. Jesus. Yeah. I'm very eloquent when it comes to the (laughs) geopolitical uh, turbulence of the... The mid to late 19th century America. It's fine. Don't worry about it. (laughs) So, yeah, Anna, she's sheltered from the whole Civil War thing, living in upstate New York, not too far from the the New York-Vermont state line. And Anna described her first 10 years fondly, recalling, like, the green meadows and the wild woods. And she could just explore that, like, really beautiful kind of rural area with her other nine siblings. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Why? I mean, I mean, I know why. No birth control. No sex ed. Still. You gotta have babies to help run the farm. Too many children. Too many of them. Uh, I mean, just wait, because it comes up in her own life a little bit later on. Jesus. So fast forward to the 1870s, Anna's childhood gets a bit of a reality check. Civil War is over. And this whole post-Bellum period, the economy gets really shitty. And that really hurt their working-class farming families like hers. Mm-hmm. So suddenly things are not so peaceful and quiet. And like, yeah, go play in the woods with your siblings. It's like, oh shit, how are we going to make some money? Because the cows aren't doing it. So with that, I mean, a lot of it kind of falls on Anna and other siblings and mostly the girls to stay at home in the farm. And that meant kind of foregoing her own education growing up. And given kind of this farming area and the time that she was born, school was only offered for about three months in the summer and then for three months in the winter, kind of in the off times for farming. But one source of support she did have with her education was her dad, Russell. What did dad do? He was a farmer. No, I mean, like, what did he teach her? Well, he was really adamant that she go to school. Oh, okay. And that she not stay home and help out on the farm, but that she actually go along with her brothers and presumably her sisters. And, like, looking back, Anna, she flat out was like, I was totally his favorite kid. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, her dad, Russell, he was a really creative guy. He painted when he could, and he encouraged his kids to be really creative, too. And Anna said that instead of buying them candy, she remembered him buying paper for them so they could draw and paint. Aww. Yeah, and in the 1870s, like, that's a big thing for someone to choose to buy paper for their children. Yeah. Rather than, you know, some penny candy. So Anna's creativity was really fostered by her dad. And when she did go to school, it was recognized by her teachers. Map making was kind of part of the curriculum, and she would draw these maps. And one of her teachers was even like, oh, my goodness, like, can I can I keep this? So, you know, recognized from a young age, she, she had a good eye. But in 1872, Anna's 12 she decides to leave home for work. She's 12. What was I doing when I was 12? 
Um, oh, goodness. What were, so we were in the seventh grade? Ugh, middle school. Gross. Ugh. All right. Enough said. <laughs> so Anna's not in middle school. She's leaving the family farm in upstate New York to go find work. And her mom... Margaret was kind of okay with it. Although her mom did think that she would come home again. And, like, meanwhile, her dad was kind of upset because he really wanted her to continue, like, going to school. Right. But, like, Anna's mom, she didn't really share her husband's views on painting and drawing and that type of education for her daughter. She was a lot more traditional of what you'd expect for, like, a farmer's wife in the 1800s. You know, like, get married, have kids, work hard, raise the kids, you know keep the hearth and home you know and and in that mix there's no time for wasteful things like painting and being creative what'd she do well she went to work um as a hired girl for an older couple in the same area so she was essentially just live in help and she would do all the grunt work they were older so she would be their caretaker as well and anna said by the time that she finished working for them she was a very old 16 year old Oh, yeah. And I feel like when she finished working with them, it meant they probably, like, both died. Oh, man. And that's what Anna does. She's, uh, you know, a hired girl, hired help, um, all the way up to 1887 when she's 27. And she's very keen. She's very financially savvy, so she's saving a good bit of money from job to job. And this is when she meets and marries a farmer by trade, Thomas Moses. And, like, by all descriptions, Anna describes him as a, as a great guy. He's kind of like her mother in that, you know, he's dismissive of art. But for Anna, she saw their marriage as a, as a true partnership. Mm-hmm. One where she admits to being the boss at times. <laughs> but they were, they were very much on, you know, level ground with one another. Yeah. So Anna and Thomas, they move south to Virginia to an area along the Blue Ridge Mountains out by West Virginia. And then they set up a farm. And like I said, Anna, she's financially crafty. So she'd saved up enough money and bought a cow. She wrote about that cow calling it, quote, the foundation of my million dollars. I need to know the cow's name. You know what? That didn't even occur to me. And I have no idea what the cow's name was. (laughs) That did not come up in my research. Oh, no. (laughs) I just know that Anna was real thrifty, and she made over 160 pounds of butter a week thanks to what? that cow. What? Yeah, which if we're going by the Amish rate these days for a pound of butter, um, that could have potentially netted her the equivalent of like $1,000 a week. Depending oh, shit. On how she, it was selling. What? So Anna's making butter, right? Good money maker. Well, there's this thing that's a bit of a novelty at the time. She's making those too. Potato chips. <laughs> yes. Uh, I like her. She's a woman of a lot of trades. She's very matter of fact and very practical and, you know, sees these avenues of things within her reach that, you know, will financially benefit her and her family. Right. And she goes for it, which is really fun. And, you know, she's really financially mindful of things. Um, so much so that when her husband needed to borrow money from her, she gave it to him and charged interest for the loan. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great. Like, sure, honey, you can have $300. Okay, now sign here, here, and here. All right, so we're going to start at a 2.4 APR. Now, here are the terms and conditions that could potentially go up to a 19.84 penalty. So now, eventually, Anna and Thomas, they're a bit homesick, but Anna's been thrifty. They've had enough money saved up. They can sell the farm down in Virginia. Uh-huh. So they do move back up to New York to start another dairy farm. And it's it's a little bittersweet because while Anna was in Virginia raising her family, she had 10 kids. 
Oh. Five of them died in childhood, so she had to oh. leave them and their graves behind. Oh. Yeah. Uh, That's awful. Sorry, I was just trying to remember some reads, but... Um, yeah, infant and uh, young children's mortality rates during this time period is crazy. And that's in part why people had so many kids, because statistically speaking, you're going to lose at least one or two of them. That's sad. It's kind of pretty tough. Oh, my God. Now, by the time Anna and Thomas, they moved back north, back in upstate New York, Anna's in her mid-40s. She's living not too far from where she grew up. And her and Thomas are running a farm and looking after their family. And his kids, you know, they're getting older. They're starting to leave the house and start their own families. And life goes on for normal. So I just want to say, by this point, this is a woman who has lived not only through the Civil War, but the invention of electricity. Oh, <laughs> one minute they're candles, next minute. <laughs> yeah, we've got this thing called a Faraday cage where it's been invented and be like, wait a minute, how does that work? What do you even need to make it work? Now, at this time, because we're, you know, kind of creeping into uh, into the early 1900s, there's all these, like, shifting social dynamics within America, which, for the most part, Anna's not really immersed or active in. Cause, and we've talked about it before. We've got the suffrage movement going on. A lot of big percolating things. Anna's really focused on her family and her farm life. And, like, more and more as she gets older, she's finally focusing back on her creative work. Mm-hmm. So even though Anna left the home at 12 for work, like she never really fully forgot about those creative instincts that she had. So just like Anna's father had done, she would paint murals around the home and she would always so make these like handcrafted and painted items for family mm-hmm. every Christmas as gifts. But I mean, ultimately, Anna, she was a working woman. So those things weren't practical. Her mother was dismissive. Her husband could be dismissive of it. So, I mean, Anna, she enjoyed being creative, but it wasn't really encouraged until her daughter was all like, hey, mom, can you make me something? Did she ask for a specific thing or did, was it just she like... She does. Oh. Yeah, and it totally kind of kickstarts her work. Now, at this point, we've made it past World War One, so we're past 1918. Things are kind of getting really weird in the art world, you know, capital A-W. We've got surrealism, you know, kind of doing its weird thing. Europe is no longer in its, like, tranquil, like, you know, impressionism mode. All these weird modern art fractions popping up over, you know, Europe and, and Russia and stuff. But, like, here in America, we're still looking to Europe, to Paris, as, like, the cool kid art center of the world. But things are still relatively tame art-wise here in the United States. With World War One coming, and then eventually two, our world slowly starting to get, you know, kind of shaken up a bit. And Anna, I mean, she didn't give a fuck about any of that while well, she's in a farmhouse. And her daughter's all like, hey, mom, can you make me something? She's like, yeah, I got you. Don't worry. So her daughter, who weirdly was also named Anna, I don't know if it's a family thing. I'm just saying that, like, if men can name their children after themselves, then why can't women? No, I get it. It just seems really confusing. As opposed to Matt's naming their kids Matt's? No, that's also confusing, and I don't like it. <laughs> I just think it's a little egotistical, but also confusing. Because you're like, Anna, and then, like, you've got three people looking at you. You're like, oh, shoot, is it the daughter? Is it the mother? Is it the grandma? That's... Who knows? Actually hilarious because my grandmother would refer to me as my mom's name kind of when I was growing up. But it would be like in Spanish, it would be like, I'm not going to say my mom's name on here. But it's like, say her name was Mary. Basically, it would be like little Mary. She was she was basically calling me after my mom. So like sometimes she'll say it and then both my mom and my like myself would whip around to like yeah what do you need because like the little didn't come until the end of the name 
Okay, yeah, but that makes sense, though. That's, like, cute. How? Still. Yeah, well, either way, her daughter with the same name as her, Anna, she had seen a embroidered narrative scene, and she was all like, hey, mom, do you think you can make me that? And Anna was like, yeah. Yeah, I got it. And this, like, simple thing that her daughter asked her to do is really what helped kickstart Anna getting her work into the modern museum of art. I'm thinking about, like, how, like, you're a mom and your whole life is supposed to be around your kids and, like, making sure everything's great. Your daughter kickstarts your passion, basically, and is like, hey, you should take care of yourself. You should do this for yourself. Like, I believe in your work. Helps rekindle it. Yeah, that's so cool. To kind of, like, yeah, give you permission to, like, make again. Because I I feel like we both know people who are, like, can list every excuse under the sun why they can't make art or do whatever they love. And I'd be like, that's, no, just go do it. Like, sometimes it's that simple. You don't need permission from anyone else. But it can help having that encouragement. So from this, Anna was making scenic fiber art. She was getting on in age. Things were slowing down a little bit at home, and she had more time on her hands, which meant she could really focus on something she's always wanted to, which is art making. And like I said, Anna was really crafty, and she would use whatever material she had on hand that caught her eye. You know, she'd use scraps of this and that to make frames and to use on her pieces. Anna was not someone who had let the lack of the right material get in her way. And arguably, that's because in her view, like, there was no right way of doing it. Like, all those cool cats in Paris who, like, know about surrealism and are, like, training in the academies and trying to enter the salon, like, Anna's just in her farmhouse, you know, raising her kids and looking at this caboose window that her husband brought home to her and is like, yeah, I can make that into some art. I got this. Yeah, because she didn't have a formal training at all. So, like, good for her. Yeah, she was just able to use what inspired her and what she had in front of her and what she had available to make what what she had in mind. Like, she didn't have any, you know, preconceived notions of what can and cannot be done, you know, inhibit what she was able to do. Now, Anna, she's getting into her 60s and her sister is like, Anna, for the love of God, try oil painting. It'll be easier on your arthritis. Because Anna, she'd been doing, you know, embroidery work and Anna, like, finally makes the switch. And she, like, really didn't start focus on painting until after her husband's Thomas's unexpected death in 1927. But Anna did say that in the weeks leading up, to Thomas's death, he was surprisingly, like, really supportive and interested in Anna's artwork. And she said about it, quote, when I started doing a little painting, he was right there watching and liked it so much. Because, you know, in the decades they spent together at first, he was really dismissive of it, you know, but then all of a sudden, you know, as they're in their older age, he took an interest and he started supporting her and, you know, bringing home a caboose window for her to make into a piece. After he did pass away, she felt like she had his support, you know, always wondering if his spirit was watching over her. Uh. Yeah, I mean, it's sad that he he died unexpectedly, but I think she always carried with her this sense that he's here with me and he he's supporting me and he loves me and I owe it to him. You know, I owe it to everyone to make this work. Now, it's a little tough because a few years later, her daughter, Anna, passes away. Oh, no! I know. I know. I'm not sure what of. Um, I feel like, you know, she was, she had young kids, so Anna moved to help take care of her grandchildren. And it wasn't really until 1935 when she could really throw herself back into her her painting. And at this point, she's in her mid-70s. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) And the type of work that Anna's doing is described as folk art. Anna did these really straightforward, matter-of-fact, really richly saturated paintings based off of her memories. She'd pull from her childhood or, you know, her time farming down in Virginia and recreate these scenes all around her memory and how she envisioned it. And, you know, she said that once 
when she was back on the farm down in Virginia, she was turning butter. Is that how you say it? Turning? Churning? Churning. Churning. She was turning butter. <laughs> Churning with a C-H. Churning butter. She was making butter. I don't know why I say it like that. <laughs> She was making butter from her million-dollar cow. She would look over the, you know, the rolling hills and the sky, and, and she said at the time, she's like, I wish I could paint the sky. And she finally did. It just was decades after the fact. Right. Oh, well, at least she, yeah, she did. Yeah. And she did use references. So she had this stash of, like, greeting card clippings and magazines of, you know, children and adults and animals that she'd helped to kind of, like, fill in, you know, her idea of what she wanted to create with these sprawling landscapes she would do. But, like, the locations and the buildings, these were all things Anna had seen. And she she was very particular about how she painted them. They're all really tightly rendered, but all slightly skewed because remember she doesn't have like this formal art school education right so the perspective at times is a little off but she's completely committed in every aspect of the painting right like she's she's not half-assed in any of this i mean she's a working woman who like does things right of course she's gonna do her art right too yeah and it's her standard she's living up to it's right for her yeah and that's Which all it matters, Which is what makes really. it so captivating. Yeah. And, like, in all these paintings, like I said, she's painting from memory. So anything evident of the modern wor- world is completely absent from her paintings. You know, we've got people who are making apple butter or they're taking the horse cart into town. There's no power lines. There's no cars. There's no airplanes. And these are all things that Anna has lived through the invention of. They exist. And she's seen them. Like, she didn't put them in her pieces, which is very interesting. No, because... I mean, remember, she was born in 1860, so she's pulling from those fond first 10-year memories she had when she's out in the woods, so we're going way back in time. So with this type of work that Anna's making, she's doing it in a farmhouse. She's not really showing work in traditional galleries at all. She did have work hanging up at a local pharmacy instead, and they did display her paintings. So in this pharmacy in the town where, you know, she lives, she's got her paintings hanging up. There's this guy from New York City that stops in while he's on a trip with his family. Sees her work and he wants to buy it. And the owner of the pharmacy is like, great, I'll give you 10% off if you buy all of them. Oh. Yeah. Because Anna did a lot of painting. She was very prolific. So the owner of the pharmacy showed him the paintings he had hanging up, had them in the back. And then this guy, Lewis Calder, he even heads around to Anna's place to see if he can buy some more art. Holy crap. Yeah. And guess what? Because Anna's got more paintings. She did a lot. And again, she's in her 70s at this point. Oh, my gosh. And we're in the 1930s. Yeah. So from here, Lewis takes the work back to New York City and shows her work. And, you know, with World War One creeping into World War Two, New York City is becoming like the cool kid art capital of the world. Mm-hmm. And there's these things like the Modern Museum of Art mm-hmm. that are popping up. And that's where Anna's work was shown in the 1939 Contemporary Unknown Artists, Contemporary Unknown American Painters Exhibition. Oh, man. She's almost 80, and she's got work in the MoMA. That's so cool. How many went up? Do you know? I'm not sure. I think there were about two or three pieces in this first show. But, I mean, she's just getting started because that was a group show. So, initially, when her work was first shown in New York City, there wasn't too much interest in it. And a good part of it was because of her age. I mean, who wants to work with a woman who might wake up dead the next day? Wake up dead the next day? Yep. Exactly. Uh, I love you. But, I mean, momentum does catch on with her work, and it's gradually shown in more and more exhibitions. Soon the public came to know her as Grandma Moses, who just paints, makes no fuss about it. Oh. Yeah, that was was one uh, DC paper, how they described her. That's insane. And, like, from here on out, Anna is Grandma Moses. People become captivated with her paintings and the persona of Grandma Moses. And 
I mean, this is all fairly organic growth that developed, and before long, Anna's work is in traveling exhibitions. Uh, she's being invited to shows, and it's selling really well. A big factor of this, one thing we've talked about before, is, oh my god, I can't say this word. Primitivism. 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 If I just say it fast enough. Primitivism. Yeah. Yes. And basically, that's just used to referring to, like, non-academic art. Basically, anything the white guys aren't making. Um, And it it can overlap with folk art. And Grandma Moses hit on both. And they were both really popular in the 1940s. And that worked out well for Grandma Moses because her work sold, like, hotcakes. And that's insane because she used not only, like, the fact that she didn't go to art school – and she was a woman, but also, like, her age, like, ageism as a hook. Yeah, where, like, initially that turned away a lot of potential um, collectors of her work yeah. because of her age. That captivated the public, and that became a big selling point. That's insane. That's, like, the one time ageism helped anyone. I know. Our last episode was a little heavy in the ending, so I thought, you know, it'd be nice to kind of do something nice and warm and fuzzy, and the more I learned more about Anna, I was like, this is really unique. This is a story that just keeps getting better and better. So cool. Which is kind of nice. Now, we've had the 1940s going in the 1950s, been through two war wars, Cold War about to brew. We've got mass market industrialization as the norm. People are feeling nostalgic for the good old times, and that, too, helps feed the popularity and works like Anna's. With her age, and like you said, her good ageism, you know, the name Grandma Moses is really cozy, along with the type of work she's making. It's, I mean, because think of that, like, abstract expressionism was becoming a really big thing, but Grandma Moses' work was really, it was representational. It was easy to look at. You could understand it right away. And so that type of appeal is what had Hallmark trying to acquire the rights to her paintings. And in 1947, they sold over 16 million postcards of her artwork. Shut up. Yeah. Oh, my God. You can even go on eBay and buy, like, fancy china plates with her artwork on it. Oh. I mean, they they really figured out a real smart way to market all of her work. So they would do postcards. Um, You could buy prints of it. They would do, like, collectible fabrics and tea towels and, you know, decorative collector's plates, right. too. Oh, it's kind of nice because a lot of artists we've covered – People took advantage of them financially and made a shit ton of money off of them. Not with Grandma Moses. Who could take advantage of Grandma Moses? Nope. If anything, she's taking advantage of the American public (laughs) and making a quick buck off of it. Because she's got some grandbabies to take care of. Branding the fuck out of herself. Oh my goodness. Like, I've heard of her, but like, once I started reading, I was like... Oh, wow. She was she was really on top of that branding and marketing and crafting, you know, putting that persona out there. Which, to be fair, I think a lot of it was generated by the press. But when they started it, she didn't discourage them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, people loved it. The idea of this self-taught woman in her 70s and 80s, you know, making these paintings where there's nothing threatening about them. Um, they're very approachable. You know, it it really helped spur the public's interest in her and, you know, the kind of the good uh, financial implications for her. And Anna, she's interviewed on radio, on the TV. There's a documentary made about her and then a film that's nominated for an Academy Award. Anna wrote an autobiography in 1952. Uh, she had hundreds of group and solo exhibitions. and. <laughs> Like, her very first solo show was at the MoMA. At the very same time, a Picasso show was running. Are you serious? Okay, see? This is why I said earlier that our grandmas are super lame compared to Grandma Moses. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. That's insane. 
So like, I mean, from the art world, bit of a weird duality to Anna's work. Publicly, people love it. It's all over the place. You can get it from collectors and from galleries, but also mass market items like those china plates and uh, tea towels. But at the same time, it wasn't like fine art. She wasn't the art world cool kids. You know, she's not like Jackson Pollock. Yeah. And all the other like abstract expressionism artists at this time. But you know, the 1950s, things were scary. We've got nuclear holocausts are suddenly a thing. People are trying to smother out things like racial and gender equality. And there's a lot of unrest about the breakthroughs of the 60s. But I mean, for the time being, like Anna's art was really refreshing and really safe and really quiet and really idealized America and what it was like. That made it really nice and homey. But I mean, for Anna, like, These are just paintings about things that made her happy and her memories. One of the biggest things I've learned from this podcast is that artists live forever. (laughs) Anna kept making art all the way up to her birthday in 1961, where she died not long after turning 101. Shut up. Yes. You're going to live forever, Megan. I hope so. I have a lot of work to make. (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh that's crazy yeah so like in the grand scheme of like american mid-century art anna's work is kind of a bit of a fluke but like from a society point of view you can see why people really loved it and were really attracted to it yeah but like dear old grandma moses she'd like quietly cashed in on the mass marketing that people sought to escape in her work that's insane yeah I mean, think it. That's like kind of cashing in on the same things that like Warhol made a point of. Yeah. Not too long after she died. So yeah, she lived through the Civil War, the invention of electricity, the airplane, the car, the bread slicer, (laughs) the invention of the chocolate chip cookie. Oh no. Yeah. And in her 101 years, she spent over two decades as an internationally celebrated artist. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the next time you think that you're too old to do something, get over it. Just fucking do it. Just do it. That's amazing. Yeah. So that is Anna Mary Robertson Moses, also known as Grandma Moses. Oh, man. I love her. I know. It was really fun reading about her. So the only connection I have between your lady and my lady is that my lady helped decrease infant mortality rates. (laughs) I mean, if she's able... To save some babies so that way every working woman didn't have to have 10 children. Yeah. I think there's a lot of women okay with that. Yeah. She had a full life. She didn't quite live to 101, but she had a very full working life. I think Anna is the longest living person that we've profiled so far. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. She was born in 1909 in Westfield, New Jersey. Her name was Virginia Apgar. Virginia Atgard. A-P-G-A-R. Oh, Apgard. Okay. Virginia Apgard. That actually becomes important later. Okay. So, she was the youngest of three children. She had two older brothers. I don't know their names, but I know one died Uh. early from tuberculosis. Ugh, it's always in the mix. (sighs) I know. Episode one of season two, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. <laughs> um, the other one had a chronic illness, but I couldn't, I like, I don't know what chronic illness he had. Mom's name was Helen May Clark, and dad was a Charles Emery Apgar, and he was a business executive, an amateur astronomer, and once exposed an espionage ring in World War One. I'm sorry, you make it sound like he just accidentally came across it. <laughs> I mean, and like nudge the most official looking person in the air and be like, 
hey, you guys, you might want to check this out. I was just testing out this uh, telescope that I just got. It's pretty cool. It's from my astronomy club. We meet Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You're welcome to come. I mean, anyway, about some espionage. I think they might be Russian. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, I wanted to get into it, but I was like, I have to learn about the daughter, not the dad. So maybe one day in our miscellaneous facts. Yeah, that'll be a little bonus episode because um, I, I'm so curious right now. And I feel like the truth is just going to let me down with where my imagination's going right now. So maybe it's for the best. I think but. that's another reason why I left it alone. I was like, this oh, is great. Man. Okay. This is fine. All right, so her dad is just, like, casually busting spy rings and, you know, <laughs> the vice president of the regional astronomy club. Uh, that's cool. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's already a weird, like, funky situation happening. But she, like, knew from an early age that she wanted to be a doctor. She graduated from a Mount Holyoke college in 1929 with a bachelor's in zoology with minors in physiology and chemistry and then in 1933 she graduated fourth in her class from columbia university of physicians and surgeons which we will now refer to as pns because that's a very long name i get it she then completed a residency in surgery so the chairman of surgery at pns discouraged her from continuing on the surgery track so the reasoning for this was because he had seen many women try to become successful surgeons and fail. Okay, I was just about to ask about the sexism because even at this point in the 30s and 40s for going and getting a college education, it's still viewed as like women go to university to find husband. To find husband, yeah. She she was not that person. Um, he countered his reasoning with encouraging her to focus on anesthesia because that was a field that needed to be advanced. Uh, and he felt that she would be the right fit for it. She was like a people person. She had an energy. And he was like, you've got that. This would be great for anesthesia. Because if anesthesia doesn't move forward, then surgery doesn't move forward. And that's very fair. But I think it was also, at the time, a bit of an insult. Sexist. It was still sexist. Yeah. Anesthesiology, then, was a task that was primarily manned by nurses, but had recently been transitioned to a physician's job. So, because of this, that most doctors didn't want to do it, there weren't enough people in it, it wasn't moving forward, it basically needed a major facelift. But the truth, honestly, is that it is a huge deal. Anesthesiologists now get paid buku bucks because they understand how important it is. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, like, crucial to successful surgery rates. And I mean, like, human surgery rates. That's all because anesthesiologists worked really hard. To keep you alive. To keep you alive. Yeah. yeah. So it deals with the general well-being of patients under anesthesia. So when people think of it, they think of being knocked out for surgery. But anesthesia is actually a very broad term. And it can include, like, pain management, sedation, immobilization, or just the general knockout anesthesia that most people think of. So the wrong kind of drugs could cause a major life or death situation. Too much oxygen given could trigger the body to actually stop breathing because it thinks it has enough oxygen. And then not enough oxygen causes cyanosis. So basically, you turn blue because there's no oxygen oxygen for blood to distribute and that's just obviously no bueno okay all right 
I'm glad I don't have any major medical procedures coming up because otherwise you'd be stressing me a little bit right now. <laughs> I mean, like, and I was I was technically an anesthesiologist for three years. So for me, like, that's the stress I faced. Yeah, but on a, you know, dog or cat size level. I know. I know. Like, some, some dogs just stopped breathing. What about hamsters? Did you guys ever do surgery on hamsters? No. Or guinea pigs? No. No, 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 no. They're so tiny i imagine it would just be complete losses like for the anesthesiologist like what do you do honestly i don't i don't know my ex's sister had surgery on her hamster to remove the finger and like at that point like i don't even understand how you could technically intubate the hamster it's too small you would have to put a mask on it it's terrible you just put like a little a little soldering iron Oop, all right finger off and we've cauterized <laughs> I wish. No, there was a legitimate surgery. A legitimate surgery. I I mean, I just, I don't know how people handled that. Or like the kind of like, it, it would be like a non-rebreathing system. If you push too hard on the bag, the hamster explodes essentially. Oh my goodness. Oh, <laughs> oh we'll talk about having a bad day. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, well, I like to think that when you're a human anesthesiologist, you don't have to worry about getting distracted and like leaning a little too much on the air pump bag and then bloop. Oh, oh damn, not another one. I mean, no, like you, you have to be like, I mean, if you essentially put too much air in the lungs, the lungs can't hold too much and it's fine. Gotta go somewhere. It's fine. Oh, God. Um, anyway. This is supposed to be warm and fuzzy. I'm so sorry if anyone's listening <laughs> and they're, they've turned off right now because they're like, no, oh, my goodness, I have surgery in, like, three weeks. Oh, no. <laughs> no, All no, I can no, think no. of is exploding hamsters. Okay, so she obviously went down that track and she did decide to specialize in anesthesiology. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, she listened to him. So she studied six months at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Basically, a Dr. Ralph Waters had established the first anesthesiology department in the United States there. And she was like, I'm going to do this now. This is fine. She was the only woman in the entire department. And she spent six more months after that at the Bellevue Hospital in New York, where she received a certification as an anesthesiologist in 1937. In 1949, she then went back to PNS as the director of the anesthesia department there. Oh, that's so wild. I know, it's crazy. She was the first woman to head a specialty division at PNS, but because of her lack of research, it was quickly given away to a Dr. Emanuel Papper, and she was given a faculty position instead. Mm. Mm-hmm. But she made the best out of a shitty situation. She ended up using her full-time faculty position to specialize in neonatal medicine and obstetrical anesthesiology, as well as pioneer new practices still used today. Oh, man. I can't think of a harder area to specialize in within anesthesiology. I know. I know. It's crazy. So I'm going to explain... I'm going to explain this to people who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Um, the obstetrical part, obviously, is the O in the OBGYN, meaning this is the branch of medicine and surgery concerned with childbirth and the care of women giving birth. In Virginia's case, she was mostly in the business of the pain management and well-being of a mother and her child during and after labor. So, fun fact, if you know nothing about child labor, you probably didn't know that c-sections although you're essentially being cut open are done while you're awake yeah yeah that's why they put the uh the little curtain up 
I didn't know that. Yeah, so you don't accidentally look into yourself. I I can't. I just know. Because, and they do this mostly so that, one, you can be, like, there for the birth of your child. And also, most drugs used to knock you out via general anesthesia can actually affect the baby inside, mess with its breathing. So general anesthesia for labor is, like, last resort. Okay, there was a fad in the early 1900s called Twilight Births. Are you familiar with those? No. Okay, it's a doozy. So, like you're talking about, anesthesiology was just kind of becoming a thing, wasn't super regulated depending on where you were and what country. And these middle to upper class women here in the States were like, oh my goodness, I had the best birth ever. I don't remember it. Oh no. And everyone was like, oh my goodness, what are you talking about? And so, essentially, you would have an anesthesiologist and would get them just clonked out. Oh no. And they would give birth and it's not that they were unresponsive because they were out. So these are women who are still experiencing childbirth but they were just on so many drugs they wouldn't remember it. Oh my god. It was not looked upon well here in the United States. So a lot of wealthy women would go to Germany to get it done. And this is in like, oh shoot, I want to say maybe 1920s or so. That is so bad for the baby. It was like a fad. Yeah. Oh God. Well, it fell out of favor for a lot of various reasons. A lot of reasons. But I'm sure you can tell us about some of the big medical ones. (laughs) I'm not even, I'm not even going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Don't do that. Do not be on drugs while giving birth unless they are given to you by a medical professional. (laughs) Preferably licensed. Preferably licensed. Oh, my God. Okay. So after she would be screamed at by women for 18 plus hours, she would also monitor all of the newborns admitted into the hospital. And honestly, in the 1950s, newborns were not particularly monitored well. Okay. Yeah. I don't understand that. I I don't know. Apparently, grown adults saw the humans that weren't really finished and, and apparently didn't click that they might need some more attention than a grown human? I don't know. I don't know. But they weren't... (sighs) People are stupid. Yeah, that transcends time and space. I mean, she was present for like 17,000 births. Whoa. Yeah, according to NIH.gov. Okay, National Institute of Health, keeping records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that they weren't monitored correctly frustrated her. And while working there, she developed a really simple scale that would help medical professionals assess the overall health of a newborn and create a treatment plan based off of its scale, right? So the original practice gave a zero to two point scale applied to five different characteristics of the infant. And then those scores were added up. An infant that scored closer to a 10 was an infant in better health than one that scored lower. So the scores were to be given a minute after birth and then in five-minute increments after that. They would essentially assess heart rate, respiration, color, muscle tone, and reflex irritability. In 1963, the system was actually renamed after APGAR. Oh, okay, cool. Each letter in her last name was an acronym applied to the system. So A standing for appearance or skin color, pulse standing for heart rate, grimace standing for reflex irritability, activity standing for muscle tone, and the final R standing for respiration. It was basically a quick way to determine the status of the infant. This was also the first proven and widely adopted system that recognized the newborn's needs as an actual patient rather than an offshoot of mom. So the constant monitoring helped the decline of neonatal deaths. 
And honestly, this is used after all surgeries. If I'm being honest, a good like chunk, most most of the complications that come from surgery actually come after you're out of anesthesia, the recovery period. Okay. So you have to monitor your patients and you, you have to do it in increments. You have to make sure they're okay. If you know that they had a rough time and you know that they came, they came out not doing well or maybe they, you know, they coded during surgery, like you got to keep up. And, like, this system, like, I used myself. So she, like, definitely saw where some common sense could be applied. Yes! We're like, hey, guys, we're going to make this a thing in this department. Yes, exactly. And standardize things. Yes. Which is crazy because you think that they would have standards. But in the 1950s, I guess, they still weren't up to par. I don't know. So this monitoring of infants also Mm -hmm. stimulated the research and awareness of infants with Birth defects. Oh, okay. Exactly. Because of the rate of newborns were being monitored, physicians were able to catch problems early, record them, and effectively help the medical world understand them. Research helped stimulate treatments and preventive medicine for them. It also ended up sparking Virginia's next career move. She saw an opportunity. Okay. So in 1959, she left Columbia for Johns Hopkins University and a master's degree in public health. She -hmm. ended up teaming up after that with March of Dimes. So do you know what March of Dimes is? Um, I know they advertise before the movies and in gas stations. <laughs> no, that's question. that's Cups. Children's Hospital, I think. That's not March of Dimes. I think they might do the both. So that is as extensive an answer as I can give you. Okay, so March of Dimes, as of now, because of her, they actually focus on premature births. There are complications that may arise. Um, so they're basically just fighting premature births because premature births lead to, obviously, neonatal deaths. Infant mortality rates, those are real. And they just happen to be higher when you have preemies on board and you have birth defects and, like, health problems that are passed on by mama. Unfortunately, like, rubella was a thing. Rubella is actually something that... Um, Virginia actually focused on in March of Dimes. They were originally on polio. They created like a vaccine for polio and they helped spread the word about this vaccine because if you don't vaccinate for polio, your kid's gonna get polio. This is this whole deal, right? Yeah, no, my great grandpa had it. Yeah, oh wow, wow. No, 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 my grandpa, my grandpa had it and then he had to wear one shoe that was a little thicker than the other. It was like a real thing though, like it was like A huge epidemic. So, like, that's what March of Dimes originally was based off of. And then... Okay. All right. I didn't know that. That petered off, essentially. And there were things like premature Mm -hmm. births and rubella that were showing up in Virginia's, like, neck of the woods where she was like, yo, there are some new things we need to consider when it comes to, like, newborns. No, I'm not familiar with rubella. What does that encompass? It's essentially just a virus that, like has a, a rash and it can like complications with it if mom has it then baby can have it and mm-hmm. then baby dies from it okay. so there's a mumps measles and rubella vaccine that moms have to get and kids have to get because if they get it they're like done like it yeah. can cause issues yeah. that has such a high mortality rate okay yeah so it just basically can cause congenital disorders miscarriages congenital rubella syndrome deafness 
Is it also known as German measles? Yes. Okay, that's how I know it. I worked with someone who her mother had it, and as a result, she was born hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just simple as that, because she had a case of the German measles as a as an infant. That's insane. Like, yeah. it can really, yeah. If, if a baby's got it, it doesn't end well. Because she had, like, worked through, like, 17,000 births, she had enough research and she had enough knowledge to move forward with the public health situation and the public... Mm-hmm. health mindset she's like people need to know about these these issues and this is where i'm going to end up like making a difference also virginia also promoted in her work with march of dimes for effective use of rh testing basically <laughs> what happens here is mama needs to get tested before she gives birth because if mom has a particular antibody, like maternal antibodies, uh, specifically the RH ones, mm-hmm. it can actually attack the placenta and destroy fetal red blood cells. So mom's body and immune system is fighting against this fetus and can cause miscarriages just naturally. Oh my god, it's amazing. You and I exist and we're here and we have all of our physical and intellectual capabilities and it could have been real bad. Ugh, childbirth is so crazy and amazing and scary and frightening and just awe-inspiring. And this is why we'll never do it. <laughs> no, we will leave it to much better people than ourselves. <laughs> so God bless you and your wounds. Oh, my God. It's so bad. So, yeah. So uh, with her work with March of Dimes, she traveled thousands of miles each year to speak to people and to, like, do um, seminars. She wrote Mm -hmm. 60 plus publications, including Is My Baby All Right? That's literally, it's a book that she wrote in 1972. Like, I mean, it's to the point, and there are a lot of people that are like, wait, what's the title of that? Because I think it's relevant to my Yeah, no, it's crazy. Like, she worked, like, everything she did was about, like, public knowledge and, like, spreading it and realizing, like, deformities do happen miscarriages do happen it's not something to like hide under the rug like there's a reason these things are happening there's a reason these congenital disorders are showing up in your children like we have the technology and we have the research and we have the numbers let's move forward to like fight premature births and fight diseases that could affect our children i mean even into the 80s a lot of the attitudes if you had a child born differently or special needs or anything it was and to an extent within like the medical community it was the mother's fault. Yeah. Yeah. She did something wrong. Either physically or emotionally in how she's raising the small child. It's default was the mother's fault. It's unreal. Yeah. And she like even went out of her way to speak to teenagers about like teenage pregnancies and like what could happen to the child. You don't do that. You don't like in the 1960s, teenage pregnancy wasn't a thing. But she was like, no, they need to know too. Yeah. Like, oh, it's a thing, all right. (laughs) Whether or not we're talking about it. It's a thing. And let me tell you about it. Yeah. Yeah. The work that she did with March of Dimes was phenomenal. Because when she was working at PNS, she noticed there was a decline in like infant mortality rates, but there wasn't a decline in the amount of babies that were like in the 24 hour mark of being born that were dying. Mm-hmm. There's a, what's the word I'm looking for? This is the new variable. Yeah, yeah, there's a new variable, a fraction of time that we don't have under control, that we don't have the best practices for. And that's what's causing mm-hmm. these issues. And we, with enough research and public knowledge, we can make a difference. 
And so she continued to work. She, like, worked until, honestly, up until her death. But she was doing what she, like, loved. And she, like, did... I mean, she wasn't just, like, working, working, working. Like, she made instruments. Like, she made a violin. Like, she took flying lessons. She had, like, a whole life. But her her passion was her work. Mm-hmm. Uh, did she marry at all? Nope. No marriage, no kids. And I, I think this is one of the first women that you've you've covered that that's hasn't been a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. No marriage, no kids. And she passed away in Manhattan, 65, in 1974. Okay. But, like, those kids that she was looking after were her children. And I, I get it. I get, like, being married to your work. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you get it, too. Yeah. Like, it's amazing what she what she accomplished. And it's so cool that her work is still having, like, a current impact on the policies that we have in place oh, yeah. to, you know... It is standardized. Keep our newest members of existence, yeah. like, alive. <laughs> it is standardized in the state, in the states and honestly across the world. Just something as simple as checking oxygen levels and making sure that the, the color is a pink and not, like, why are you practically pale? <laughs> like, hey, a checklist can go a very long yeah. way. You don't skip the basics. And I think the fact of the matter was is that there were not basics in place. And Virginia Apgar saw that and was like, we can't we can't continue like this. And she made a real beautiful difference. So that is my my worm and fuzzy. I like it. <laughs> yeah, we kinda had a real depressing note last episode. Um, but not, not today. today. Not with the start. Of season two. Season two, bitches! Woo, yeah! Yeah. You're still here. We're still here. (laughs) Every episode, there's more of you guys. I like Milena. Milena. She does. She texts me. I don't know where they're coming from. She's like, we got more listeners. I'm like, I haven't opened that website in like two months. How do you even know? (laughs) I get nervous and I check every now and again. I'm like, there's more. There's more. So when we say you guys are awesome, we really do mean it. You guys really are, are cool. Thank you for sticking around and listening yeah. to us ramble about amazing women. We don't ramble. That's what editing's that for. That is what editing's for. You're welcome. So, um, yeah, as always, if you guys have made it this far, you guys are really awesome. Yay! We really mean it. Now, Milena, if people are interested in learning more about the people that we've covered so far where could they go we have a website myfavoritefeminist.com you can email us at info at myfavoritefeminist obviously dot com at the end of that uh, <laughs> we have a facebook and an instagram under my favorite feminist and then our twitter is at milena megan so that's at m-i-l-e-n-a m-e-g-a-n and you can let us know who you want to hear about, who we haven't talked about, if you have anything on your mind. Um, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Go ahead, rate, subscribe, give us some love. And in the comments on iTunes or tweet at us or whatever, tell us about your grandmas. My grandma's the coolest. I just swear a blood oath to get her Christmas cookie recipe. Nah, I am the holder of the sugar cookie recipe. Those are some banging sugar cookies. It's good stuff. Grandma knows what's up. (laughs) So until next time, guys, we'll see you then. Bye.
I can hear the music now as you cue the outro. <laughs> ah, man, it feels like forever. Well, I guess, yeah, it's almost been two months since we've done this. It's been forever. Oh, God. Ah, oh, stretching. I hear you, you little butt. <sighs> this is fine.